I'm Adam Pascarella, and welcome to episode 20 of The Power of Bold. From New York City, it's The Power of Bold, the podcast on risk-taking, entrepreneurship, and bold living. Join us as we interview world-class performers, analyze life-changing books, and gather actionable insights to help you achieve your goals. Here's your host, Adam Pascarella. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the podcast. We've got a real treat for you today. My guest for this episode is Annie Duke. For those of you that watched poker on ESPN in the 2000s, you may remember her name. Annie is a former professional poker player who won over $4 million in tournaments throughout her career, making her one of the top-earning female professional poker players of all time. She has also won a World Series of Poker bracelet, an extremely prestigious prize, and is the only woman to have won the World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions and the NBC National Heads Up Poker Championship. Annie retired from poker in 2012 and is now a speaker and consultant on decision strategy. Simply put, Annie was a legend in poker and is an expert on decision-making. Poker players may make up to 20 decisions per hand, and Annie spent about 20 years playing poker. She's a pro's pro with this stuff. Consequently, she released a book on decision-making which is called Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. Even if you aren't familiar with poker or couldn't care less, Annie's book has some really important tips on how we can all become more rational, objective decision-makers. From deciding to quit our job and try something new, to deciding what to order at a new restaurant. In our interview, we touch on a number of topics, including how poker influenced Annie's views on decision-making, the problem of resulting, where we equate the quality of a decision with the quality of its outcome, how thinking in bets allows us to more objectively evaluate decisions, and the steps we can take today to start making more rational, objective decisions. One more thing. Before we start, I just want to apologize for some of the shaky audio during the interview. Our Skype connection was somewhat spotty, and even after we've tried to clean up the audio, you may hear some gaps or delays. So if you feel like you missed something during the interview, you can head over to thepowerofbold.com and find the transcript for this episode. Okay, without further ado, here's my discussion with Annie. My guest for this episode is Annie Duke, one of the leading female money winners in the history of professional poker, and a current corporate speaker and consultant on decision strategy. Annie, who retired from poker in 2012, has devoted her life to studying decision-making under pressure, and she just released a book on decision-making called Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. Annie, many thanks for appearing on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Your book is is an excellent primer on ways that we can improve our decision-making, And we're going to go over some of the strategies that you offer to help us become better decision makers. But before all of that, I'd like to ask about why you decided to write the book in the first place. So so just to start off, when did you first become interested in how humans make decisions? Oh, gosh. Uh, Really, actually, in, in college, I got a job as a research assistant with a professor at at Columbia where I went to undergrad um, named Barbara Landau. And she was studying first language acquisition, which is 
related to the, the this issue of how do you learn under conditions of uncertainty. Um, and so I was I was her research assistant for four years, and then she encouraged me to go on to graduate school, which I did, and I actually uh, went to Penn to study with Lila and Henry Gleitman, who had been her advisors when she was in graduate school. Um, you know, so I was really in the cognitive science program there and was was studying, um, you know, all sorts of things about the way that we process information. And I, I, my specialty was still in first language acquisition, but there's actually a lot of similarities to what, what the problem is uh, that you're presented as a, as a child trying to learn your first language and actually what the problem is you're presented with as a poker trying to learn, a poker player rather, trying to learn how to play. And so I, I actually went all the way through graduate school, all the way to going out for professorships, but I got, I got sick right at the end and I needed to take some time off. And it was during that time off that I started playing poker uh, right around 92. And in 94, I declared myself a pro and then from 90, uh, 94, when I declared myself professional all the way to 2012 would be when my poker career was happening. But uh, 10 years before I retired in 2012, in 2002, I started actually giving talks, um, keynotes, uh, corporate retreats, um, executive coaching, consulting and decision making, uh, particularly under conditions of uncertainty and thinking about risk and and probabilities and scenario planning and strategy. Um, so I, I overlapped the two careers. It's just that the poker career was, was very public facing. Um, mm. and the, the, you know, consulting career was, you know, they don't show that on television. So. Right. <laughs> exactly. When you're sitting at the poker table and you're early in your career that, so that wasn't the first time you were thinking about, you know, developing a system to make better decisions. You'd been thinking about this for some time. Um, and was there was there a particular moment where it really stuck out to you when you were at the poker table, or was this something that was just ongoing? So I, I you know, I think that there there was uh, initially a little bit of a conundrum for me when I when I first started playing uh, that I think that I felt very implicitly that there there was this clash happening between kind of this thing that everybody learns in their first introduction to psychology class and how people behaved at, at an actual table. So in intro to psych, every psych one class, one of the things that people uh, learn is this idea that learning occurs under condition where there's lots and lots of feedback tied closely in time to decisions and actions. So you can think about how that might apply to you know, sort of the classic rat running a maze, you know, it runs the maze, it gets to the end of the maze, it gets a reward, a pellet, and then it learns to run the maze faster. And so it's getting feedback for its actions, that the, something is tied to the action of learning this maze. Um, and so that that's sort of what you're, lear you, you're taught, and you're taught this kind of applied being so. This is an incredibly feedback-rich environment. You're getting um, outcomes within seconds, of the decisions that you're making, you know, you win or lose the hand, there's an exchange of chips and, and this is happening over and over and over again in a very compressed, uh, timeframe. Uh, and what I saw was that while there's some pretty steep learning, right, right kind of at the beginning, which has to do with figuring out basic concepts like, Oh, I can win without the best hand. So I could bluff, um, that there's a lot of plateauing 
that occurs after that. So you have this kind of initially steep learning curve and then it just sort of flattens out. And that was really super confusing to me how, how, how people could be making the same mistakes over and over again for, you know, 10 years, despite the fact that there was lots and lots of feedback that maybe those strategies weren't so great. Um, so I, I kind of implicitly understood like, oh, there's something really interesting going on here. And then in 2002, when I got asked to give my first talk was when I really started explicitly trying to, to put that into, you know, words that I could express to other human beings. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's interesting. Um, I follow David Einhorn, the investor. He's actually a poker player too. And he says that investing in poker is pretty similar, except for poker, you receive the outcome right away where investing, you have to wait potentially years to to see if if you're right or not. But even receiving that outcome right away isn't the whole picture as you describe in your book, because you could have won because of luck. You, You don't exactly know what happened except the outcome. So like you've lived in both worlds with, you know, um, the, the, the poker world and outside the poker world, um, getting, getting that feedback, how, how do you deal with deciding whether, you, you know, some event is luck or whether it's skill? Like, like, how do you get into that? So now you've gotten down into the core of the problem. So, yeah. um, so, so here's really the issue that is really so revealed in poker. That's the issue that we have in, in any area of life investing, you know, business decisions, any kind of life decisions, you know, choosing a partner, even, even, you know, how how do you, what happens when you follow or don't follow the rules of the road? I mean, you, you can get out down into really most life decisions fall into this category, which is that there's lots and lots of uncertainty and the uncertainty comes from two places. Uh, the first place is that there's hidden information. So the cards are face down. Um, so you're making these decisions without knowing what your opponent's actual cards are, which makes it very hard for you to calculate out what the best choice is or even what the worst choice is, mm-hmm. because I can't, I can't see what you have. And to make that problem even worse, um, and this is where I think that it's sort of an illusion that there's a big difference between poker because it takes a while to get the outcome versus investing because it takes a long time, is that most hands of poker end up with with the cards never being revealed Mm -hmm. and without the cards ever being revealed, it's very unclear what the worst or best choice might've been sort of all, you know, is you you know, you won or lost the hand. And, and so that's not that different between you make some sort of investment, say in a stock and the stock is sort of ticking up and down, you know, minute by minute, Mm -hmm. but you know, so, so that and this is sort of similar to an outcome that you might be getting in poker is that you, you have, you do have these fluctuations that are happening, which is really what those chip exchanges are, but you're not getting a, a fully formed outcome in the sense that I never get to see, I mostly don't get to see your cards to know, like, you know, did I have the best hand? Did I have the worst hand? What might've been the best choices in the sense that you might have that information, for example, in every game of chess that you play. Because right. I can see your pieces and I can see where you moved them and what all the possible moves were. So that's that's a first source of uncertainty that's really difficult to deal with um, is this hidden information problem. And then the the second sort of source of uncertainty, which really mucks things up, is this luck issue. So, you know, the problem is that even if you took away all of the hidden information, you can still win with the uh, worst hand and lose with, with the best hand. I mean, you can think about a game like backgammon 
is being it, it's like poker without the hidden information, right? I can, I can see where all of your checkers are mm-hmm. in backgammon. Um, but so I can sort of calculate out if I have a superior position to you at any given time, but you have to roll the dice. So even if I have a, a superior position to you right now, just, and even if I play my position perfectly, I can still lose to you because the dice don't go my way. Mm-hmm. So where this causes a problem is that all we have to see is the outcome. I won or lost the hand. And how do we derive then if we know that luck could be the main force? It could be the main force, whether that outcome was due to luck or skill. You know, did I, did I play right and I just got unlucky or did I play poorly and I sort of got what I deserved? So, you know, it, it feels a little amorphous when we talk about poker, but I think uh, where we can see this like really clearly is, is if we think about something super simple, like going through a traffic light. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I like, I, I don't know about you. So I'll, I'll just add, like, have you ever run a red light in your life? Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Right. I, I bet actually, cause I've done this. I bet that there have been times when you might've done it on purpose. Like it's two in the morning and there's literally no one around <laughs> and it's taking forever for the light to change. And there, I mean, you're just, there's no, there's no traffic. Like, so, Maybe you've done that on purpose. I, I, I did that. Like, I don't do that anymore. But when I was younger, maybe I did that. Mm-hmm. So, you, so you've, you've run red lights. Um, have you ever, like, gotten in an accident because of it? Not yet. Knock on wood. Not yet. Right? Interesting. Yeah. So that's a good outcome. But do you, can we agree that it's not a good decision to run a red light? Yeah, of course. Right. So, and I personally, I don't know about you, but I've actually run a red light and got a green light rather. I've got, I've been following the rules of the road and I've run a green light and gotten into an accident before. Mm -hmm. So, and and yet I don't, I don't go back and say, oh, you know, going through green lights, that's such a terrible idea. So this is where we can see like in this very simple uh, example, which is very, very skill driven, what the influence of luck is. And so if all that I tell you, if you don't, if you don't have access to whether the light was green or red, right, that sort of would be the hidden information piece. Mm-hmm. If all I tell you is I got through the traffic light safely, how do you know whether I made a good decision or not going through the intersection? Right. If all I tell you is I got in an accident, how do you know um, when you can't see the light and you can't see whether I was following the rules of the road. And that, that's kind of the problem of most of the, you know, most of the decisions that we're making in our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, it's really interesting. And somewhat related to this is uh, your idea of resulting. And mm-hmm. I, I found this discussion really interesting in the book because I think it's such a common phenomenon that people have, yet we, we kind of ignore its effects. And so for those of you that don't know, it's essentially this idea that we have this tendency to equate the quality of a decision with the quality of its outcome. And, and so little hindsight bias is at play and, and people, again, don't calculate the impact of luck. And in the book, I, the example I really like is when you talk about the New England Patriots uh, Seahawks Super Bowl decision. Yeah. At the end, when, when uh, Pete Carroll decided to uh, pass the ball instead of handing it off to Marshawn Lynch. And everyone said, oh, that was such a, a bad decision, even though the odds may have... Uh, you know, may have said that it would have actually been a good decision. They were just unlucky for for deciding that. And so, so why do you think people tend to ignore this this idea of resulting? So hindsight bias and resulting are kind of twins. Like they're they're related to each other, uh, but slightly different. So let's call them fraternal twin biases. Um, hindsight bias 
is this kind of idea that uh, once an outcome happens that no other outcome was possible. So anytime that you make a decision, there's a set of possible outcomes that could occur. And what kind of happens with hindsight bias is that it, be, it feels like that was the only outcome that could have happened, the one that actually did happen. And so therefore you should have known that that outcome was gonna happen. Mm -hmm. um, and then resulting is that the quality of the outcome that occurred tells you what the quality of the decision is. So in the P. Carroll case, um, uh, we could say that the hindsight bias would be, well, of course the ball got intercepted. Who didn't know that was going to happen, right? And it doesn't matter that it was a very low probability. That was the outcome that could occur. So that would be hindsight bias. Resulting is, of course, it was a bad decision because the outcome was bad. So we know it must be a bad decision because it turned out so poorly. And that's actually exactly what happened in that case was, um, so Pete Carroll is on the one yard line of the New England Patriots. They're down by four. It's second down. They have one timeout. Uh, and there's 26 seconds left in the game. Uh, so um, he decides to call a pass play. So Russell Wilson passes the ball. Instead of handing the ball off to Marshawn Lynch, who, of course, is an amazing running back, mm -hmm. um, Malcolm Butler intercepts the ball in the end zone. Game over. And, you know, you can hear during the game, Chris Collingsworth calling that and just talking about, oh my God, how could he have made that call? It was so horrible. Um, and then the next day, in general, the newspapers agreed. Um, it was kind of an argument among pundits about whether it was the worst call in Super Bowl history or the worst call in NFL history. Um, and there, there wasn't really, there, there weren't very many people saying, well, hold on a second, like maybe we should actually look at what the statistics, like what, what were the probabilities there involved in that decision as opposed to just looking at the fact that it turned out spectacularly badly. Um, so there were a couple of people, um, you know, uh, I think it was Brian Butler on Slate and then Benjamin Morris on 538, um, both argued that it was actually quite a sound play. We don't need to get into the details of why, but the simplest thing that I can say to you is that the chances of an intercept and, uh, interception there were very small. Mm -hmm. um, in the 2000, uh, in, the, 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 in that season this was the 2015 super bowl the interceptions rate in that particular situation short yardage um into the end zone was actually zero um and then the last 15 years of the nfl it, would, it was around between one and two percent so it was a really 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 unlikely outcome the most likely outcome was either the ball is dropped at which point the, the clock stops and they can run these two running plays anyway um, they can hand it off to marshawn lynch regardless um or the ball is caught you know assuming for the game-winning touchdown so what happened there was that everybody was so caught up in the, the spectacularly poor quality of this outcome that they just all said, oh, this decision must have been awful. And to see how much of a shadow um, an outcome casts on your ability to see through to the decision quality in any kind of clear-eyed way, like how much of a gravity well it is, mm -hmm. just imagine this. And I'll ask you to imagine it. What, would have, what do you think would have happened in terms of the headlines? And in terms of Chris Collingsworth's call during the game, had the ball that was thrown been caught for the game-winning touchdown? Yeah, I mean, Pete Carroll would have been thought of being a genius, you know, because Marshawn Lynch is this power running back, and he was, I think he was doing pretty well that game. Mm -hmm. But they probably would have said, oh, that was such an unconventional call. He must have saw something that Bill Belichick or, or other people didn't see. Right. Like he, he, you know, this is what got him to the Super Bowl. Yeah. What a bold call. Genius. He out Belichick Belichick. Exactly. Um, and I think that we can feel that pretty strongly. And in fact, we, 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 there, 
there's a really good example that's evidence of that um, in the Super Bowl this year, the Philly special, which was an incredibly unexpected yeah, play. Right. Everybody expected the Eagles to just go for the, the field goal. It was it was fourth and one um, to end the second the second quarter. Everybody expected them to go for the field goal. They were up by three and just go up by six. And instead, Doug Peterson calls this Philly special and, you know, Nick Foles is all of a sudden in the end zone um, catching the ball for a touchdown. Um, and, and you can see, you know, every, you know, Chris Collingsworth is calling that as a genius play, like, Ooh, the Maverick coach. Um, and the next day everybody's like, Oh, that was, that was so crazy. That was really out Belichick and Belichick. So here we have these, you know, two plays where I think that you can see that the outcome is really distorting the way that we, uh, think about the decision. Um, and in fact, if people want to get kind of a kick, there, there's actually a review of my book, Thinking in Bets, on uh, my Amazon page, which is just a review of, of my saying, maybe that play wasn't so bad. And the person just saying, no, it was horrible, and really going through all the reasons uh-huh. why it was so <laughs> awful, which was mainly that you should have known that it didn't work out. It's actually, it's, it's kind of a pretty funny review if you've, if you've read um, the book. And I think that that's, it's, it's actually a really interesting example of how powerful it is. Because, of course, I, I, as you know, I don't say in the book, oh, it was a genius play. I just say, you know, I think it's pretty hard to argue it was the worst play in Super Bowl history. And we should think about the other side and how much of a shadow the result might be casting. Exactly. And, and I guess just going beyond sports in our day-to-day lives, I mean, we all deal with this phenomenon to one extent or, or the other. But do, mm-hmm. you, do you see resulting being more prevalent in certain situations, maybe higher stake situations compared to day-to-day situations we see in our lives? You know what? I think that it happens in, in just even the smallest of situations. You know, you, 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 you're looking at the menu and you're trying to decide what to order. And I mean, this is a very small stake situation, right? And you, you decide on an order, you get your food. It's terrible. And what do you think immediately? I should have ordered the other thing. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Oh, that was such a bad decision to order this. Well, how could it be a bad decision? You didn't know, like, you didn't know it was going to come out poorly. Like, and you'll do this even in situations where you have experience at the restaurant and, like, the food has actually been good in the past. And you order it and you're still like, oh, what a bad decision. Why did I order this? That's, like, as low stakes as it can get. It's just your lunch. Right. Right? So, you know, I I think that this happens all the time. It happens certainly in in HR decisions, right? When we hire someone and and they turn out uh, to maybe not work out or... Um, uh, or they quit after six months or whatever. What a terrible decision to hire that person. Well, maybe not. You know, maybe you had available candidates and of the available candidates, that person had the highest likelihood of being a good hire. But the fact is that, of course, there's uncertainty and, of course, there's hidden information there. You, you, you're looking at the person's CV. You're trying to do the best that you can with the interview process. But you know, you don't get to have them come work in your office for six months before you decide to hire them on unless you uh, happen to be hiring on an intern, mm-hmm. you know, and even then you, you, you only have, you, you just have more information in terms of predicting how they'll turn out as a hire in the future. Uh, it's still not definite. It gets closer. But, you know, when you're, when you've got four candidates coming in and you're looking at their CVs and you're checking their references and, um, and, and you're doing the interview, uh, it, it's, you know, it's probabilistic. How, how it's going to turn out. It's certainly not certain. Um, and maybe you're choosing uh, the person who has the highest probability of working out among all of the people that, that y- you have to choose from, but it may be the highest probability is I think it's 60%. Right. 
Well, that means that 40% of the time, maybe that hire isn't going to work out. That doesn't mean you made a bad decision. Yeah. You know, it means that you chose the highest probability to work out. I, I think that one of, uh, uh, I think a really good example of this problem actually comes from the 2016 presidential election. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you looked at Nate Silver, sort of where Nate Silver kind of landed, um, you know, in the last week leading up to the election, he had, you know, Clinton about 65% to win and Trump about 35% to win. Um, you know, so when Trump won, what did people say? Well, Nate Silver was wrong. Mm-hmm. The like, well, no, the pollsters got it wrong. Yeah. Right. But but no, Nate Silver said it was 35 percent. Yes. Um, and and that doesn't mean that he was wrong. It means that he was assigning probabilities to a single election and that we can't really say a lot about whether his algorithm is wrong unless we look across all of the elections that he's predicted. We just don't have enough data based on one time when 30 percent, 35 percent happens a lot. I mean, to give you an idea of how much 35% happens, it's about Monday, Tuesday, and half of Wednesday during a week. So unless you're like incredibly surprised that Monday and Tuesday sort of roll around every week, you probably shouldn't have been that surprised that, you know, Trump won. It would be like, it's Monday, you know, yeah. it's Monday, I'm wrong. I, it, it, it like literally doesn't make sense off the one time. And I think that that's what resulting causes us to do is to think that the one time matters so much for determining decision quality and it really doesn't say very much about it when these things are so loosely linked mm-hmm. yeah it seems like people if, if they're if you give odds of 60 40 70 30 they think the 40 or 30 is zero and, yep and they're shocked when the 30 percent actually happens even though it's 30 percent three times out of right 10. so I, I guess one of the more brutal ways that i put it to people is oh, oh, oh you think 30 percent is zero okay i have a gun with 10 chambers in it and i'm gonna fill three of them with bullets yeah, right. <laughs> right. You wanna... Do you want to play? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and of course, people are like, what? No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No way. And it's like, well, okay, but you have to understand, like, that's 30%. So, uh, you know, Pete Carroll, this is the Pete Carroll problem, right? Like, Pete Carroll had a gun with 100 chambers, and like two of them were filled. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and, and it, you know, and he spun the, the, you know, the chambers, and, you know, the bullet came out of the gun. I mean, that's what we need to remember. It's weird, and this is the big problem: is that you know I think that we talk about being results oriented as kind of a good thing in life, and in fact, it's kind of a bad thing to be results oriented because what it does is it means that you're looking at the quality of the outcome, mm-hmm. and. And you're saying, this is what tells me. This is what tells me whether decisions were good. And the fact is that for most of the decisions you make in life, it's not, it doesn't tell you very much because you can't collect enough data to say one way or the other. It's like, you don't, you don't have 10,000 coin flips at most things. You have a couple. Um, And if I flip a coin twice, it doesn't tell me very much about the coin. Exactly. And I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like one of the antidotes or a way to cure this resulting problem is by thinking in bets. Um, would, would you agree with that? Yeah. So, so let me explain a kind of what I mean by, by thinking in bets. Um, so one of the things that we want to kind of do is dig down into how confident are we about how much of this result has to do with decision quality versus how much of this result has to do with luck. And one of the ways to do that is to actually think about it as if you had to bet on it, as if you had to bet on your decision about it. 
Um, and you can do this in terms of thinking about uh, betting on a belief that you have, like, um, you know, here, here's something that people, you know, pundits have been saying for next November is, you know, Democrats are going to take the House or mm -hmm. the Democrats are going to take the Senate. Um, so, so that would be an example of like a prediction that you might make. Um, you know, there, there are uh, beliefs which would be, you know, say that um, uh, climate change is caused by humans. That would be a belief you might have, for example, um, that attachment parenting is the best way to parent. That's that's a belief that you might have. So uh, when we think about this, uh, we can imagine that if we were to frame those things as bets, that we might bring to the surface a little bit more what our own uncertainty is. So like the example that I give in the book, and it's a super simple one, is if you say, Citizen Kane won Best Picture. And obviously, I've, I've, I've just said that with certainty there, right? I, mm -hmm. I've said that that's just true, right? So marked as true. Um, Citizen Kane was be won Best Picture. If you said to me, well, do you want to bet on it? You know, what, what's going to happen to the person who's challenged to a bet there? They're, they're going to take Google out. Yeah. They're going to be like, oh, wait a minute. Let me think because I'm actually, maybe I'm not 100% sure of that. Maybe I just kind of said that as if I were sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, but maybe I'm not. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess if just just not to make it a little more tangible for the listeners as well. So like we, we have a lot of younger listeners who are professionals and some are perhaps like seeking to become entrepreneurs. So say like one of one of our listeners wants to start their own business and they have an idea, business plan, what have you. And they're thinking of of making the leap. And so in that case, you have to evaluate it as if you're placing a bet on a certain future. Right. And then mm -hmm. you have to evaluate the opportunity costs and and go from there. Like, like, what would you recommend for people that are thinking of doing something like that? Well, so I recommend essentially a set of tools that really allows you to embrace uncertainty. Because when you embrace uncertainty, I think that you have a much better probability of success because what happens is that results don't end up kind of yanking you around because you're much more prepared for the types of futures that could occur. And you're much more likely to have action plans in place to deal with different twists and turns. And particularly when, if you want to make the leap into entrepreneurship, you better be prepared for the uncertainty. And if you're not prepared for the uncertainty, you're going to have a much more, uh, a much higher chance that it's not going to work out. So, so how you start with saying, okay, I, if I make a particular decision, if I decide that I'm going to do this and I'm going to execute a particular strategy, let me try to imagine what the different scenarios are that could occur. So th this is your first step in doing it, right? So, um, you know, what are the ways that this could work out? So we can think about it like, for example, like here's a super simple thing. Like, okay, if I go through this green light, what are the ways this could turn out? Right. Well, I could get in an accident. I could get through just fine. I could get a ticket because we know that sometimes people like the police can stop when it doesn't have any, you know, when you actually were following the rules of the road, just as an example. So those would be three simple scenarios that could occur from my driving through a green light. You know, if I um, you you have if I start the business versus I don't start the business. Right. And you can sort of figure out the scenarios if you if you if they in your career as a lawyer. What, how, how do we think that might turn out? What do, you, what do I think the returns are? Not just in terms of money, but my own happiness, my own sense of fulfillment, mm -hmm. the things that I value. Um, and then ask yourself how much risk you're willing to tolerate. The, the, 
how much risk you should five is going to be really different than how much risk you should be willing to tolerate when you're 60, as an example, right? So because um, when you're 25, you can recover a lot better if things don't work out. You've got lo- mm-hmm. a lot more time to sort of, uh, you know, build yourself back up and collect enough money until you pass go, right? Which would be, say, retirement. If you're 60, you're probably going to be a little bit more risk averse in your decisions, right? So you're sort of deciding how much risk am I willing to take on and then think about given what your values are, what, what kind of things make you happy, what kind of things make you fulfilled, how much security you feel like you need in your life, that kind of thing. You know, you can say, yes, I want to, I want to make the leap mm-hmm. or not. And if you do decide to make the leap, obviously there's different types of leap you could, leaps you can make and different kind of strategies that you can implement and try to think about what the scenarios are, good and bad, that, that can result from those. And then once you've got those scenarios figured out, um, take a stab at the probability of those things occurring. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that that's, what's really important, right? Is to say, you know, well, okay, so I'm going to make this leap into entrepreneurship and here are the different ways it can work out. And it may actually be that failure might be the most likely scenario, but you've decided that you can tolerate that because the payoff for success is enough. So it's not just that you're trying to figure out the probability that uh, the the scenario that has the highest probability of success. It's Mm -hmm. that you're trying to figure out the scenario that given the payoff to you is worthwhile. So you may end up saying, well, okay, the failure scenario is 80%. The success scenario is 20%. But the payoff on the success scenario is so high to me that, that I'm willing to do that. So make sure that you have that with open eyes because then if it doesn't work out, you're less likely to self-recriminate. You're less likely to feel like you should never have made the decision in the first place or the decision was really bad to try because you've laid all that out in the first place and you've memorialized it in some way so that you recognize, well, this was always in the tree, right? Like this mm-hmm. was one of the ways that thing could, things could turn out. So that that's kind of number one. And then, and then number two that I think is really important that we don't do enough of is don't just think about all the wonderful ways that, you know, you're going to become a you know, multi-billionaire entrepreneur, but think about, really think about it. It's five years from now and this hasn't worked out. Why did that happen? Mm-hmm. So it, it, that's what we call a pre- the pre-mortem. Mortem. So, yeah. So most people do what's called a backcast. It's five years from now. I'm fabulously successful, you know, and I'm on the cover of Inc., Right. And how did I get there? And that that's sort of the world that we like to live in is this very positive fantasizing because we sort of think like we don't want to be a naysayer. We don't want to be sort of like a dark cloud Mm -hmm. and we want to be our own best cheerleaders. And and that's awesome, except that that reveals a different path to success, interestingly, than thinking about it's five years from now and I failed. Because when you think about it's five years from now and I failed, how did I get here? What happens is that you you it's you really end up stress testing the plan mm-hmm. in a way that's actually much more effective where you can kind of see the points in the road where things could go wrong and number one you're much more likely to anticipate those coming so that they end up not being a big surprise to you um, and it means that you're going to be more nimble because you're going to be less reactive to those things happening because you're going to say okay i recognize that there might be these things that might occur number one uh, okay, that's fine. I, I know that that might happen. And number two, let me try to think about how I could reduce the probabilities, the probability of those things occurring, because now I've recognized that those might be in my path ahead. And uh, 
I'm going to reduce the probability of those occurring, but it doesn't mean that I can get it to zero. So let me think about what I'm going to do in case they do occur so that you already have an action plan in place. Um, yeah. And so it's interesting because I think that living in that sort of more negative side of things actually increases the probability of success. It doesn't decrease it. Yeah, I think you, in your book you say there was a study where people that engage in this pre-mortem activity actually achieved more success than the people uh, doing the opposite, envisioning all positive uh, a positive future and everything like that. And I think it's interesting, too, because you're trying to, throughout the book, you're trying to become a more rational, objective thinker. But at least with the pre-mortem, you're using those negative emotions to your advantage. Would, would you argue that? Just, just Absolutely. Yeah. I, I agree with you completely. You know, I think that there's been a lot of stuff about, you know, positive thinking. Um, and what I would say is that uh, I, I like to think more about positive goals, as opposed to as opposed to positive thinking. So uh, of course you want to have a positive goal that you're moving toward. But if if you spend all your time thinking positively about that positive goal, you're going to miss a lot of ways in which there might be stress to, in, in your plan, right? In which your business might be stressed or your decisions might be stressed. So there's two places that I really recommend that people go look um, in terms of looking at why you know, sort of thinking about these, these, these paths of failure might be really helpful to getting you toward success. One would be look at, at Gary Klein. He wrote a great piece for um, Harvard Business Review. Um, and in general, his work is pretty interesting. He, he's somebody who really talks about sort of what the role of uh, instinct is and in decision making. So I think, I think he's kind of an interesting guy to read as a contrast to, say, Kahneman and Tversky, which think more about bias. That's more the world that I think in. Mm -hmm. But he, he, I think he, he wrote a very nice piece about the power of a premortem and how much it improves your decision making uh, to do that because it, it develops a, a more clear picture of how the future might unfold. And the better our picture of how the future might unfold, the better our decisions around it, right? So, so that's really where the premortem comes in. Um, and then uh, Gabrielle Uddingen wrote a, a book called Rethinking Positive Thinking. Um, which I really highly recommend as well, which really talks about this idea of what what does thinking about where things might go wrong, how does that help you? Like uh, here here's here here's where I'll give you a very simple example. Let's say that you have a weight loss goal. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I want to lose twenty pounds in six months. and you and I say to you, okay, it's six months from now, and you lost the twenty pounds. What are all the things that happened? You know, what you're likely to say is like, well, I went to the gym and I ate really healthy, and I stuck to my diet. Um, and that's sort of where you're going to, where your mind is going to go. It's, it's going to be about like gym going and going to the gym five times a week and making sure that you're, you know, I didn't eat the bread at the restaurant, um, and things like that. When I say to you, okay, it's six months from now and you failed to reach your goal, you didn't lose any weight. How did that happen? Mm -hmm. Now what's going to reveal is all the things that are going to be stressed, right? Like I was too busy and you know, the first thing to go was the gym or, Every time I went into the break room, there were donuts, you know, or a bunch of friends asked me to go out, you know, and, and it was sort of like this once a week thing and there was alcohol involved. And as soon as I start drinking, you know, the chips and French fries start going down my mouth, you know, and you start thinking about all of those ways in which you might fail. And notice what that does for you is it allows you to anticipate, okay, if I know that one of the big places that I'm going to fail is that the first thing to go in a busy schedule is going to be the gym, how do I create a contract for myself to make sure that that's protected? Mm -hmm. if, I, if I know that I'm going to have a problem because the break room always has donuts in it, you know, what, what can I do in order to make it so that I'm less likely to eat the donut? 
Um, and then you can also do things like imagine, well, let's say that I do eat the donut. What's my plan? Mm-hmm. Right. Because then what happens is you say, OK, if I eat the donut, it's OK. That that just means like, OK, I messed up in that minute, but I'm going to make I'm going to make sure that I don't mess up the rest of my day which is what tends to happen if you haven't planned for that. You feel so bad about yourself that you failed because you've slipped that you end up just giving up on the whole day or the whole week and you say, I'll start again on Monday. If you've anticipated that in advance and you have a plan for it and you've written down what your plan is in case you slip, you're less likely to end up having these sort of cascading effects. So you can see just with something as simple as like a weight loss goal, how imagining it's six months from now and, and I didn't reach there sort of reveals all of these places where you can actually shore up the plan in a way that's much more likely to get you to success. Exactly. And you're, you're planning for the worst and hoping for the best. And, and at least you, that's have, exactly right. you have a, a plan if, if things uh, don't go as well as you imagine. Uh, right. Well, well, just, just to wrap up here in, in the book, you say that, you know, we're living in the matrix, so to speak, and that, you know, our, our brains make the world more comfortable and mm-hmm. that our, our beliefs, we, we see them as nearly always correct. And um, we always see favorable outcomes as a result of our skill and not luck. And so for our listeners that want to break out of this mindset today, what, what can they do Like starting today? Is there something small that can get them uh, going on that front? Yeah, there absolutely is. So I'm going to give you the bad news first, and then I'll give you the good news. <laughs> okay. Uh, the bad news is that there's not a whole lot you can do on your own, meaning if, if you just say, well, I, I, I'm a pretty smart person, I'm pretty good at information processing, and now I know, right? I know that uncertainty is really hard to deal with, and I'm really likely to take credit for good stuff and, um, uh, you know, sort of offload responsibility for bad stuff that happens. And now you've told me about resulting, and you just say, well, now I'm not going to do that anymore because you've told me about it. Um, the answer is you're, that's not going to help you very much. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you know, this is just kind of the way that our brains work. There's so much uncertainty in why outcomes occur the way that they do that we just have a lot of like cognitive rope to sort of hang ourselves with. So that's the bad news. But here's the good news. And, and this is what everybody can go out and do right now is go find two people to help you. So here's the thing. I am probably going to be pretty hard, pretty, sorry, let me say that again. I'm probably going to be pretty bad at spotting when I'm being biased, right? At spotting when I'm blaming something on luck that maybe was partly because of decisions that I made or biased about taking credit for things that turned out well that maybe involved some luck, right? I'm not gonna see that necessarily so clearly. I'm not gonna be able to see when I'm resulting necessarily very clearly. But what's really interesting, and I think that you'll, you'll probably feel this like in your gut, is that you're really good at seeing it in other people. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like you could say, oh, come on like that. You're so biased. Right. (laughs) So we're very good at seeing it in other people. So um, if we can get a couple of people to agree to help us with our decisions and we'll help them with theirs, um, we can actually get much better at this. The key is, though, that the group needs to be formed with intention. Yeah. Yeah, So. I think that there's been a lot of talk, obviously, recently about echo chambers. And this is sort of how humans naturally tend, right? That we sort of like to hear our beliefs spewed back at us. That makes us feel pretty good. And when we're in groups, we tend to do that. We tend to do that kind of team player, you know, agreeable, um, just kind of agreeing with what the other person is saying. 
Um, and that's not very helpful to our decision making. That that just means that we're sort of like talking to clones of ourselves and we know that we're not very good at it on our own. So talking to a clone of us is probably not going to be very helpful. But if you can get a, pep- a couple of people to agree, look, we're here to watch each other's you know, decision backs. Um, and so what that means is that, first of all, we're going to hold e- each other accountable to uh, trying to become as rational as possible, right? Where our goal as a group is to try to be accurate rather than right. So what do I mean by that? Well, being right means, well, I believe something and now I just know even more so that it's true, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, um, you know, I, I'm liberal and so I really like to listen to Rachel Maddow because she, she tells me what I already know. Or, you know, I'm really conservative um, and so I really like to listen to Fox News because they tell me what I know already. So that that's reasoning to be right, to just affirm the things that you already believed were true. Reasoning to be accurate is challenging your beliefs and trying to kind of stress test them. It's, it's approaching the world by asking, why am I wrong? Mm, as opposed yes. to why am I right? So that you can get closer to the objective truth. So if we were to form a group together, what, what we would be agreeing to is that when you state beliefs that I would be poking at your beliefs and I would be saying, well, have you thought about this other way to think about it? Why do you think, think you might be wrong? What kind of, um, you know, details went into this decision that you aren't telling me that maybe are making you uncomfortable? Like, tell me all the things that would make you uncomfortable. Um, And we're agreeing to do that and that we're going to support each other in that. So that what happens is that the social approval is not coming from this sort of nodding and saying yes to each other. The social approval is coming from when I come to you and I say, Adam, I think I made a mistake. I think I made a poor decision. Yeah. Let me tell you about it because I, I think I actually may have goofed here. And you say, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's so cool that you're saying that to me. Yes, I totally want to help you with that. And now we're supporting each other in this more kind of truth-seeking attitude. Right? So you need the accountability. You're going to hold me accountable. You need this mm-hmm. commitment to accuracy. And then what we also need to be committed to is tolerating and being open-minded to views that disagree us and actually uh, agreeing with amongst ourselves that that's what we're actually going to seek out and the reason why it's so important to seek out views that disagree with us is because we already know why we believe what we do yeah exactly like we don't need help with that i I already know why i have the opinions i have or 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 i have the predictions that i have or i think that this strategy is going to work out beautifully or this tactic is exactly right or this product is exactly what we need to launch or this person is exactly who we need to hire. I already know what my reasons for that are. What's really helpful to me is when I seek out people who disagree with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, when you do that and you form this group with this kind of charter, no longer or hopefully you move toward this attitude that information dis- that disagrees with you is no longer sort of like viewed as a threat to your identity, but it's viewed as a help. Because it helps you to actually form more accurate beliefs about the world that then make you a better decision maker. And that means that you'll win in the long run as opposed to in the short run. So you can think about it like if what I'm doing is um, just trying to be right, I'm getting all of my kicks out of what's in the moment, how I feel in the moment, right? Like, oh, I'm right. I knew it. I feel so good. If I'm thinking about accuracy, then I'm getting all my kicks out of being being a better decision maker going forward. And as my decisions get better, my probability of success goes up and up. And so I'm winning in the long run. Exactly. Exactly. Well, well, those are all excellent tips. And, and for more, the listeners can uh, 
by Thinking in Bets. It's a terrific book, and I really enjoyed hearing about all of the tips to become a better decision maker. And, and so, Annie, if people want to learn more about you or the book, where can they go? Sure. So uh, there's a few places that you can go. One is um, I'm pretty active on Twitter, so you can find me at Annie Duke. Um, uh, you know, I just post a lot of stuff that's either science or current events based that I think relates to this kind of thinking. Uh, you can also go to my website, AnnieDuke.com, and there's a few things that you can do there. One is you can hire me there. Uh, another is you can contact me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you can contact me there. And the other thing is you can sign up for my newsletter there. So there are archives of the newsletter on there. It goes out every Friday. You can see if you like the content that I put out every Friday. And if you do, please sign up for the newsletter, uh, which is really thinking about, uh, it's really trying to put forward like ways that you might apply the concepts that are, that are in the book to things that are happening kind of that week um, in the news. Um, so hopefully people like it and sign up for it. Um, and then the last place that you can find me is actually at my nonprofit, which is how I decide.org. Um, and uh, that's a nonprofit that I co-founded to try to um, uh, do a couple things. Uh, first is to uh, create programs uh, to teach critical thinking and decision skills, particularly to underserved youth. Um, and to try to get that into more into the curriculum of what's being taught in schools. Um, and then the second is actually just to catalyze interest around, you know, how do we get people to be more rational mm-hmm. in general um, and make that a priority in education, um, which, you know, right now, obviously, uh, the priority is in, you know, learning two plus two is four, which you can look up on the Internet. So uh, I'm hoping that we can uh, create a priority about being more rational in the way that we process information. Great. Well, we'll link to all of those in our show notes. And Annie, thank you so much again for speaking out of the book. It was, it was a great discussion. Thank you. And take care. So that was Annie Duke, a legend in professional poker and an expert on decision making. As you can tell, Annie is really passionate about how we can all make better decisions. If you're like her and would like to learn more about decision-making, you should check out Thinking in Bets. It's a fairly quick read, and you'll come out of it with some great ideas on how you can make better decisions in your everyday life. That's it for this episode. Once again, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Power of Bold. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Power of Bold. For show notes and a transcript of this episode, visit thepowerofbold.com. Feel free to get in touch by visiting our Facebook and Twitter pages. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play. We'll see you next time.